Good morning, everyone. It's so good to have each of you here this morning. We're continuing today in our series of messages from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. I've titled the whole series, This Treasure in Jars of Clay. How many of you have seen the 1993 film, Jurassic Park? Okay, at least some of you will know what I'm talking about. There's a scene in that movie, somewhat famous, where in, in the park, of course, it's a disaster thing, you know, they have, they've made dinosaurs from DNA and, and then now they've got a park full of dinosaurs and the velociraptors, which are supposedly really intelligent, manage to escape their cages and uh, there's an expert at the park in uh, velociraptors and he's trying to track them down to neutralize them. And there's this scene where he's there in the jungle and he spots a raptor and he very carefully lifts his rifle to take care of it when uh, all of a sudden another raptor appears right here. And before she eats him, he looks at her and says, clever girl. He thought he was the expert, but he was deceived and outsmarted by his enemy. That's really what Paul's worried about in these final three chapters of 2 Corinthians. Is the church going to be deceived and outsmarted by the enemy? We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. I've titled today's message, The Church Under Assault. Let's see what Paul had to say about this. Verses 1 through 4. But I fear... That's not it. I'm sorry. Thank you. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness, and indeed you are already bearing with me. For I am zealous for you with God's own zeal, because I have given you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, just as the serpent deceived Eve in his craftiness, your minds might be seduced away from sincerity and purity in Christ. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus than the one we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, how well you bear with it. Paul writes, uh, in these final three chapters, uh, very much addressing head-on a false teaching that's going on in Corinth. And uh, Paul is worried about the state of the church and worried about them being deceived by this false teaching. And there's a lot of irony in these final three chapters, and what Paul ends up doing, it's a fairly sophisticated way of argumenting his point. His opponents are, are promoting a triumphalist version of the gospel. Something, something uh, kind of a mixture between the Roman Empire's version of what glory should look like, you know, the saviors of the world, the Roman peace, 
uh, meted out and maintained and kept through the engineering feats of the Romans and the strength of the Roman army. And uh, mix that with the Jewish messianic expectations that the Messiah would come and establish the kingdom of God and place his people in control of the whole world. That's kind of where these opponents are coming from. And Paul is saying, how do I explain to the believers in Corinth that that's not what the kingdom of God is about? How do I explain to them that that's not what Jesus is trying to do? Just create his flavor of another earthly empire like so many that have come before. How do I counter that? And you'll notice in 2 Corinthians some, te- some key words Paul uses over and over. And he's borrowing, I think, the language of these false teachers in Corinth. He starts talking a lot about boasting, bragging about things, and being prideful and uh, exhibiting with great pride something that you're uh, very happy about yourself. And Paul uses his boast in a very strange way because the things he chooses to boast about are the exact opposite of the things his opponents in Corinth are trying to boast about. And by using the language of, his, of these false teachers and uh, applying it in the way Christ would use that language, he is completely dismantling their position because Paul starts boasting about things like weakness about his shortcomings, about uh, his lack of strength, things that his opponents would never be boasting about, they would be embarrassed by. So Paul is continuing his argumentation here, and he asks them to please put up with a little bit of foolishness from him. And he kind of tongue-in-cheek parenthetically says, okay, you're already putting up with it, I know. But, but tolerate just a little bit of foolishness from me. Let me enter into this argument uh, and, and present a foolish argument. And before he actually says what he's trying to say, he explains his motivation. The reason he cares to even present all of this to the Corinthian church is that he says, I am zealous for you with God's own zeal. Something surprising that we find in the Bible. And the Bible is, is in some ways, one way to describe the Bible is that it's God's love letter to the human race. I don't like to call it God's instruction manual. It's not that. It's a love letter. It's an invitation to a relationship for eternity. And it's the story of how it came about that God had to fix what had broken that and how God has restored that and how he invites us to be brought back into that. But what we find about God in the Bible is that God is not sitting off somewhere in some distant heaven looking at this little speck in the universe that is the planet Earth with disdain and lack of interest. He's not just sitting up there looking down on us, mildly bemused by the things we're going through. The Bible presents us a God who is passionately invested in the lives of human beings and very specially so in the lives of those human beings who turn to him in faith. 
to the point that we can talk about God's zeal for his people. God is passionately invested in the good of the believers in Corinth. And Paul says, because that is the way God is toward you, guess what? That is the way I have become toward you. I have become infected with God's own zeal for your good. And that is what's motivating me to get involved in all of this. And he says, let me, let me use a metaphor to describe how I'm feeling about this whole thing. It's like I'm a proud father who has a daughter. And I have given my daughter in marriage to a man. And it is my duty as father to guard her purity until she can be entering into this marriage relationship. And in that metaphor, Paul is the... Uh, proud father and Corinth the church in Corinth that God used Paul to start is his beloved daughter and the the bridegroom or the groom to whom she is being presented is Christ himself and Paul is saying I am trying to present you to Christ as a pure version untainted unadulterated and I feel it's my responsibility to guard your purity and sincerity. But I fear, lest somehow, just as the serpent deceived Eve in his craftiness, your minds might be seduced away from sincerity and purity in Christ. He continues in this language of purity and uh, the language of, of the danger of being seduced And of course, adultery, infidelity, spiritual adultery is a common theme in the Old Testament when the people of God turned away from God to other gods. It's often described by the prophets as uh, being seduced away, as being adulterous. And that's Paul's fear. That somehow you are going to be deceived and moved away from sincerity and purity in Christ. There was actually, at this time, uh, in, among Jewish writings, there, was a lot of writing, there were a lot of things that were written uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament that are not part of the Bible, but uh, a lot of Jews uh, at this time liked to take Old Testament stories and just kind of use them as a springboard to expand upon them and, and write out uh, some broader version of it. And there were versions of the story of the serpent deceiving Eve where the serpent actually presents himself to Eve as an angel of light and not only entices her to eat of the fruit, but he also seduces her. And that seems to be the language Paul is using here, that image of the serpent misrepresenting himself and seducing Eve away from purity and sincerity. Why is Paul worried about this? He explains, and I love this verse 4 because I think it really outlines for us what was wrong with the false teaching of these people in Corinth. He says, here's why I'm worried. If somebody comes and preaches another Jesus than the one we preached, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted. How well you bear it, you tolerate it, you put up with it. So there are three things, I think, that characterize these false teachers. 
The first is that they are redefining who Jesus is. They're talking about Jesus, but the person they are talking about is not the Jesus Paul is talking about. This has been a problem for the church for 2,000 years. People say all kinds of things about Jesus, and there's this great temptation to take Jesus and accommodate him to what we want Jesus to be. And there are many, many truncated versions of Jesus out there. There have been scholarly attempts. They call it the quest for the historical Jesus. And all that ends up happening at the end of this great quest to uncover the true historical Jesus is a self-portrait of the scholar doing the study. Because inevitably, the things you don't like Jesus doing or saying, you assume are false, and the things you like are the ones you go with. It ends up looking exactly like what you would be if you were Jesus. We do that in the church. We come to Jesus and we talk about how he loves uh, the neglected and the outcast, and that's an awesome thing, and how he's and humble in heart and all these wonderful things about Jesus and how he says don't judge lest you be judged we love that we don't want anybody to judge us and I'm happy to give up my right to judge if nobody else gets to judge me and we, we, we gather these things about Jesus and form this caricature of Jesus and leave out things like if anyone loves father or mother or husband, or wife, or brother, or sister, or daughter, or son more than me. He is not worthy of me. We live out things like, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. We ignore things like, you must love your enemy. Serve those who persecute you. Pray for them. We create a version of Jesus that isn't Jesus. Paul says, this is what I'm worried about. These guys are redefining who Jesus is, and you don't know Jesus well enough to notice. That's a scary thought. Or you receive a different spirit from the one you received. And here's the thing. We come to faith in Christ. The first gift we get when we come before God and surrender to him is the gift of his Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell in us. And that spirit is so different from any other person we've ever known. And there's a, there's a character to who God is. And there is a quality to what the spirit of God looks like. God is humble. God is meek. God is a God who sees the bruised reed and does not break it, who sees the faltering flame and does not quench it, who speaks kindness and gentleness. God who became a man and established the kingdom of God without ever currying the favor of any politician, without asking for help from any government, without seeking to establish power through weapons 
he, he did none of that. And yet, he established the kingdom of God that 2,000 years later is still going strong while the Roman Empire is long gone. But there's a quality to God's spirit. He's not arrogant. He's not dismissive or cruel or prideful or hurtful. He's not selfish. He doesn't do things because uh, they, they feed his ego. But there are people who make their way into the church and try to convince us that, that those kinds of things are okay. That we can be great Christians and not be kind. That we can be great Christians and because we're right, we can be arrogant. And all of a sudden, we are operating under a spirit that is not the spirit we received. Have you seen that in the Christian world in your lifetime? People very proudly pronouncing themselves Christians with a spirit that has nothing to do with the spirit of Christ. A third thing these guys are doing. They are preaching a different gospel. And I think the church continues to struggle with this. There are people who are trying to convince us that the gospel is the way we get what the world is trying to sell us. Right? You want uh, authority. You want power. You want everything to happen the way you want it to happen. You want to be able to impose your will on others. Then the way you do that is you mobilize politically, take control of the country, and pass laws, and everything becomes Christian. That's all you got to do. Seize control and impose the Christian faith the way the world does things. That's the glorious vision of the gospel work. And we are taught that the gospel is not about surrender to God. It's the other way around. The gospel is the means by which we grab the tiger by the tail, the means by which we reduce God to a genie in a lamp, and God is there to make my life better. God is there to answer my needs. God is there to take care of my problems. And I don't have to surrender one selfish inclination of my heart to be a Christian. I can continue being the same self-centered idiot that I was before. I can be just as selfish and arrogant and prideful and hurtful and dismissive, but I'm right. So who cares? That is not the gospel. The good news is that you are a rebel who has spit in the face of his creator and that rather than annihilate you, he chose to come and pay for your offense on the cross so that you could be pardoned and so that if you chose to, you could turn to him in faith and he could fix everything that is broken in your heart and life. So the gospel at its heart is a message of transformation. You cannot come to Christ and stay the same. 
There is no true gospel without surrender to the transforming work of Christ in your heart. Any version of the gospel that sidesteps that is a different gospel. Christ has to change you. He has to move you from sinner to saint, from dead to alive, from shameful to glorious. And it's not just an imputed thing. He doesn't just pretend like you're that. He's going to make you that. That's the gospel. Let me ask you. How have you seen people in church present a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel? Let's keep reading verse 5. For I consider myself in nothing inferior to those super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speech, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, we have demonstrated this to you in every way and by all means. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I plundered other congregations, receiving support so that I could serve you. And when I was with you and in need, I burdened no one, for the siblings who arrived from Macedonia fully supplied my need. And I kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. But I will continue to do what I do so that I may cut off the opportunity of those who are seeking an opportunity in their boasting to be found like us. Paul, I think, uh, is being uh, ironic in his use of the term super apostles. I don't think he considers them to be apostles at all. In fact, he's pretty clear about that. But uh, he, he lets them know, I don't, I don't think of myself as somehow inferior to them. And uh, the, the very fact that he talks about super apostles, I think, also gives us an insight into the kind of people these are. These are people obsessed with titles. And we see it in the church today. There are people who say, what is the, the title that would give me the, the highest standing in the eyes of everybody else? Pastor's pretty good, but how about I call myself bishop? I can be a pastor of pastors. Or maybe I can say I'm a prophet, and, and what I'm saying is straight up a word from God. You better listen. And others say, well, that's pretty good, but... Maybe I should call myself an apostle. Put myself right up there with Paul and Peter and all those guys. The guys who wrote the Bible. And people go crazy. There are people out there calling themselves the angel of the Lord. Because apostle is not high enough. How do we fall into this? And Paul says... 
I'm not saying that I'm somehow less than. In fact, Paul is more than because they are not at all what they're even claiming to be. But, but he says, and Paul admits this, I am unskilled in speech. And that's clearly from his Corinthian correspondence, that's a, a common attack against him in Corinth. Because in Corinth, there are people in the church, we've already said Erastus, the church treasurer, who if you go to Corinth today, you can see the inscription on the road there where he says, I, Erastus, dedicated this road to the city of Corinth. He was wealthy enough to build marble roads for the city. Um, and so there were people in the congregation who were extremely wealthy. And uh, they were very familiar with the Greek love of philosophy. And uh, there was among Greeks a training you did to become a good rhetorician so that your rhetoric would be spotless and your argumentation would follow certain patterns. And they had become accustomed to hearing people who had trained very explicitly in how to move people to agree with you through your speech. I guess the closest thing we have in our high schools today is if you take debate, right? You have some formal training in argumentation, right? It's something like that. And he says, I'm unskilled in that. In other words, I have never learned that skill. That doesn't mean Paul was, uh, didn't know how to preach a sermon. It doesn't mean that Paul didn't make any sense when he talked in public. It just means he didn't have that technical training. He didn't speak that way. And some people in Corinth said that that indicated he wasn't as good as people who did have that kind of training. But um, he, he says, yeah, I, I don't have this training, but in terms of knowledge... I'm not short in that department. In fact, Paul was probably superior to all of his opponents in Corinth in that field because Paul had not only studied in the most respected center of Jewish learning, Jerusalem, but he studied in Jerusalem under the most respected rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. So, and add to that the fact, and we can tell this from Paul's that Paul was brilliant. He was not some bumpkin idiot. He was, he was a guy with a keen, keen mind to the point that for 2,000 years people have been struggling to really understand the, the depth of his argumentation and his points that he makes in his letters. But people's lives for 2,000 years have been utterly transformed through the work of the Spirit by the words he put on pages. So he says, in terms of knowledge, we're not lacking anything. He broadens it to the people who are working with him. We've demonstrated this to you in every way and by all means, in every possible context we've shown you that we're not operating out of some kind of great ignorance. And maybe that's what the opponents are trying to do. They're trying to elevate their own status and bring down Paul's so that people will not listen to Paul. And Paul says, was this my big sin, that I humbled myself? Again, notice that. That's not what his opponents are doing. They're building up their brand in Corinth. And Paul says, yeah, I humbled myself. In fact, Paul was probably a huge embarrassment. He says, is this, I humbled myself to exalt you because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? When Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half, 
He worked making tents. That was his skill trade that he had learned. In fact, he and Priscilla and Aquila did that together. And uh, he, he made tents and sold them to live off of while he was working there and starting the church. And I'm sure this was tremendously embarrassing to people like Erastus, the city treasurer. To say that the founder of the church, the leader, the one they're all following is some commoner who's out there in the marketplace selling tents. And I'm sure when he was there that the wealthy people in Corinth tried to get him to stop doing that and said, listen, we've got plenty of money. Let us support you and do it full time. And Paul had every right to do that. Jesus said when he sent out his disciples to do ministry, he said the worker is worthy of his salary. You live off of the work you're doing. Let the people you're ministering to support you. Paul had every right to say, okay, bring it. Uh, take care of my expenses and then I can spend 24-7 working on this. But Paul didn't. He refused. And I'm sure that was an embarrassment to them. How do they invite their aristocratic friends to come and learn about Jesus from a guy who's selling tents in the marketplace, in the Agora? Why did Paul do that? Was that his big sin? Now, it isn't that Paul didn't accept money from other congregations. He says, in fact, I plundered other congregations so that I could serve you. There were times in Corinth when I was in need, but I didn't take a penny from any of you. And God brought in brothers and sisters from uh, Macedonia, and they fully supplied everything I need so that I didn't have to ask you for anyone, anything. I didn't have to burden any of you. And you have to wonder, why did Paul not take money from them? The Macedonian churches were poor. Why did he let them give him money and not the rich people in Corinth? I think when Paul got into Corinth and some of these wealthy people started coming to Christ, he realized he had a real challenge. How do I tell people who are so deeply enmeshed in Rome and the power structure of Rome, how do I teach them that the kingdom of God is a different thing? And in Roman society, this is the way the aristocracy the, the person in the position of higher power and privilege would take on somebody from a lower position and would be a benefactor to that person. And it's what the Romans called friendship. And it was very much a reciprocal relationship where there was one power, person in power, and a person in less power. And the duty of the recipient was to show honor and gratitude to the benefactor. And that is how a Roman aristocracy was woven together. And Paul realized very quickly, I cannot enter into that structure. I can't become one of these philosophers that is on the payroll of the wealthy patrons in Corinth. I have to retain independent uh, existence. No way is the gospel compromised. So Paul made the decision early on, I'm not going to take any of this money. Now apparently, that was not the makeup of the congregations in Macedonia. They didn't have wealthy people in their congregations. They were poor. They were not in this power structure. So Paul had no problem receiving money from them. That might sound weird to you, right? You should take money from the person who has too much, not the one who doesn't have enough. 
But we have to understand that the kingdom of God works so differently from the way we think. It it doesn't work by uh, you giving from your surplus. It works from you giving everything you have to God and surrendering everything you have to his purposes and being, considering it a privilege to be able to participate in any of the needs that are brought before you in any way you can. And the Macedonians got that and Paul wanted to make sure the Corinthians understood that. That this is the nature of the Christian life and the kingdom of God is not like Rome. It's not even like the kingdom of Solomon or David. It's not like earthly kingdoms. And here he finally comes to the foolishness he's asking them to tolerate. As the truth of Christ is in me. This is oath language. This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. This is Paul's foolishness. This is his arrogant boast that I did the work of an apostle and never got paid a penny for it. That's a very different message than his opponents were peddling. You see, they were talking about how you can use Christ to get more money and more power and more authority and more privilege. Paul's boast is, I found in Christ a divestment of all of that. And he says, I'm going to call Christ himself as witness to what I'm saying here. And by the fact that Christ is true, by the very fact that Christ is in me, I will say this. I am not going to shut up about this boasting of mine in the whole region of Achaia. I am going to confront this false version of the gospel. And I will not be quiet about it. But again, notice this boast completely undermines the kind of boasting that his opponents were making. And it isn't because he doesn't love them that he didn't accept their money. God knows he loves them. Why then? Why not accept the money? I'm going to continue to do what I do so that I may cut off the opportunity of those who are seeking an opportunity in their boasting to be found to be like us. Why is Paul doing this? He wants to make sure that he is conducting himself in such a way that people who are not willing to follow Christ in the the life of genuine love and service and self-sacrifice, people who are unwilling to walk that path will never be able to say, we are just like him. You see, his opponents were taking money from people like Erastus. They were all too happy to hobnob with the aristocracy and to move around in these circles and to accept all of this and to buy into this. I am moving up the social ladder and very soon here we Christians will call the shots. Paul says, why am I doing this? Is it because I don't love you? No. I'm trying to make sure that I have cut the knees out from anybody who's trying to present a false version of the kingdom of God among you. 
so that they can't say, I'm just telling you the same thing Paul's telling you. I'm doing the same thing Paul's doing. No, you're not. Paul was so radically committed to the true gospel that he was living it out in a way that made it impossible for his enemies to say, look, we're the same. Let me ask you, how do you live life or how do you live a life that only a person in Christ could live? Is there something about the quality of your life that somebody looking at you would have to say, that's different? Verse 13, for such persons are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It is no great thing then if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will correspond to their actions. Paul finally explains clearly what he has to say about these teachers. He says they are false apostles. An apostle is somebody sent in representation of another, an envoy. You send out somebody to represent your interests somewhere else. He says these people are false apostles. They claim to have been sent by Christ and to be among you in representation of Christ, but they are lying. They have not been sent by Jesus. They are deceitful workers. So it's not that they're sitting around doing nothing. They're working. But everything they do is meant to twist the truth somehow. To to move you away a little bit more from the truth. They're disguising themselves. They're putting on the persona of an apostle of Christ. And we might say, well, that's weird. I thought all the enemies were outside. And Paul says, oh, that's the way Satan has always worked. He doesn't show up with his pitchfork and horns. He shows up dressed in white. He's blonde, blue eyes. There's a glow behind his head. And he's got these beautiful white wings. And he tells you the things you want to hear from God. That's the way Satan does it. He misrepresents himself as a representative Christ. So don't be surprised if those who are following his lead in life, who have not truly surrendered their lives to Jesus and who have no interest in being transformed by the gospel, don't be surprised if they behave just the way Satan does. And they sneak into churches and pretend to be following Christ, but are in fact only serving themselves and using you to do it. They present themselves. They disguise themselves. They masquerade as servants of righteousness. In fact, they're servants of Satan. And Paul says their end is going to correspond to their actions. They may deceive you. They may deceive the whole church. But Christ knows. And nobody is deceiving Christ. 
in a sense, Paul doesn't feel responsible for uh, punishing or doing something to these. He knows Christ has got a full account of everything, and he knows those who are deceitful, uh, people who have inserted themselves in the life of the church, answer to Christ for what they're doing. Paul's reminding us that the greatest danger is not out there. It's not the government. It's not the universities. It's not the things that are happening out there. The greatest danger is this insidious work infiltrating the church from within that tries to whisper in our ear, you can follow Christ and not be changed at all. You can follow Christ and not surrender your heart to him. You can follow Christ and continue being the arrogant, selfish, hurtful, cruel person you have always been. And you can even knock it up a notch because now you can even say you're right. That's the real assault on the church. Let me ask you, how have you seen Satan misrepresent himself as speaking for Jesus in your life? We face a lot of misdirection today. People yell to us about prayer in schools, transgender rights, abortion, gun ownership, the welfare system, undocumented immigrants, and we are led to believe that these represent the frontline assault on the Christian faith. That's not where the real fight is taking place. It's not some godless liberals out there who are the problem. It's the people inside the church promoting a godless version of the Christian faith. A version in which we can still be self-centered. We can still crave power. We can abuse and denigrate others. We can still count ourselves as followers of Christ and claim to be redeemed by His blood, filled with His Spirit. We have to identify this false teaching inside the church. The only hope we have of seeing it is to know Jesus so intimately that we can spot a fake version of him a mile away. We have to recognize when the spirit with which we are operating is not the spirit of Christ. We have to know in our bones that the good news we are being told is not the good news of a life surrendered to the redemptive work of Christ. Will you hold fast to Jesus and resist the assault? Will you leave out the true gospel of the real Jesus in his actual spirit? We're going to sing a song now, and this is our opportunity to respond to what God has been telling us in his word. Let me ask you to stand. We have some people who will be here at the front if you would come down now. Christ is calling you to himself, not to any other person, not to any party, not to any brand of the Christian faith. He is calling you to himself. And I want to challenge you today to come and say, Jesus, I want you, nothing else. 
And I want to surrender to what you are up to, not any other agenda. Please come while we sing.